You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello and welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Doug, hey, Matt. hey, hey, hello. How are you all? Good. We're approaching the end of the year, so yeah, no yeah. end of the you year. Know. It's December. <laughs> yeah, uh, we made it through a year doing this. It's been awesome. I think. Yes, yeah, it's our twelfth episode. This is this 13. is 13, thirteen actually. Yeah, so we're over the. Woo! I thought, yeah, we oh, made it. Right. <laughs> we did. We did it. Well, it's the first one was recorded a very, very long time ago, <laughs> right? And then we did. This is our twelfth in a row yeah. for the year. Good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So, because of that milestone, sort of, um, mm-hmm. and you know, because we have such a huge following, <laughs> a bunch of listeners, we we really can't even walk down the street. Um, <laughs> we figured it would be a good idea to do an episode that's called Ask Us Anything. And this is not a new idea. Lots of kinds of podcasts have Ask Us Anything type type episodes. But we wanted to throw this idea out to the public and see if we got some questions that we could attempt to answer. We got some. Yeah. We got some. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> and keep sending them if you have them. Yeah. We'll probably do this again if um, maybe. I don't know. Let's see how this turns out. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. Okay. First question. That's from my mom. <laughs> yeah, we got some family questions. Yeah. In here. Family is so, included but, in, the, in know, the submissions. They're listeners yeah. and not geologists. So. Yeah. Her question was, how does the KGS benefit Kentucky industry, state government, and other stakeholders? That's a very good question. That's something we have to keep in mind as, as geologists who work here, I thought I would remind everyone of our mission too, because it, it kind of mm. somewhat answers the question. Our mission, the KGS is a state-supported research center and public resource within the University of Kentucky. Our mission is to support sustainable prosperity of the Commonwealth, the vitality of its flagship university, and the welfare of its people. We do this by conducting research and providing unbiased information about geologic resources, environmental issues, and natural hazards affecting Kentucky. So with that kind of foundation, I I just jotted down some examples of each of those stakeholders, industry, government, and other. You know, we have a lot of stakeholders in in industry, oil and gas outfits, uh, anything from small oil and gas companies to large oil and gas companies who use our data, uh, mining companies environmental firms, geotechnical and engineering firms, mm-hmm. developers. Those are the things I thought off, off the top of my head. They, those are all industry entities that use geologic information. Yeah, right. maybe real estate. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, we're, we're getting into radon uh, work where we're providing radon information. Um, yeah, we'll say oil and gas users are our biggest data users mm-hmm. from our online data sets. They're a huge user base. We'll talk a little bit more about oil and gas. A lot of industries, but but then government. So Yeah, so government we have state and local governments that use mm-hmm. our data. Oil and gas data, geologic map data, hazards, uh, groundwater. karst groundwater mm-hmm. uh, groundwater data. So 
all levels of government are, are included in our stakeholder mm-hmm. stakeholders. Yeah, we have really good relationships with, we're, we're part of the University of Kentucky, which a lot of people ask us about, but we are sort of this kind of weird quasi state agency where we have this mission to serve the Commonwealth. And so we have really close relationships with a lot of state agencies. Yeah. DOW. Division of Water. Mm-hmm. Right. Work with them a lot. So, yeah. 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 I think we're closely tied uh, being within the university. We have very close ties with the earth and environmental science department here as yeah. well. And so there's also an aspect of, of education and. Yeah. Yeah. Students, teachers mm-hmm. at all levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, also maybe in the other category would be just individual citizens who have queries, have problems. They often don't know where to turn. The three of us get lots of questions from the public about various geologic issues, mm-hmm. phone calls, emails. I'm sure, Sarah, you get a lot about sinkholes, karst, hazards. Doug, I know you field a ton of calls about all of our online map services, databases. So... Water wells, springs is what I get a lot of, and that's where I do work oh, yeah. so closely with Division of Water. But it's a lot of like public requests that people yeah. reach out and just need a resource, where to go, who can help them. And so even if it's not us, we can often provide guidance. Yeah, we we get a lot of queries about oil and gas information. Where oil and gas, you know, people think they might have an old well on their property or and we have that information yeah we we hit a large range of people who come here because we are pretty good at providing that yeah. data and information even if we're not the originators of all the t- all the time <laughs> <laughs> of it but and um, a big part of it is all of our data is free yeah know. it's downloadable accessible through online services, whatever that may be. So mm-hmm. yeah, 16 million data records. That's wow. Freely available on the internet. So awesome. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it was a decision we made a long time ago and I think it's paid off really well for the Commonwealth and for us and for society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big proponent of it. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, good question, mom. Thank you. <laughs> hey, mom. <laughs> Next question. Also a family question (laughs) is from my in-laws. What are some unique geologic formations or events in Kentucky that you don't often hear about? Fantastic question (laughs) and one that will stir up future episodes, I'm sure. Um, I've I've got four listed here and we'll try to kind of quickly make it make it through these because, again, we could we could have some spinoffs here. But um, Mm -hmm. I have I have four formations or places really that you don't often hear about in a geologic context, I guess. Uh, first one I have is Abraham Lincoln National Historical Birthplace. This is under the National Park Service umbrella. It's in Hodgensville, Kentucky. And I, I put it on the list because mo- this place is mostly known for obviously Lincoln's birth and the cabin that's there and the cultural history, the fact that he's from Kentucky. But what most people don't know is that the Park Service actually did quite a bit of work compiling a geologic map, a geologic report that includes resources and hazards information about the geology of the park, which is pretty cool. Primarily, that's cave and karst 
features mm-hmm. that are at the park. The park has caves, springs, sinkholes, sinking streams. A big prominent feature uh, at the park is a feature called Sinking Spring. So I just thought it was cool to kind of think about Lincoln's birthplace in a geologic sense because mm-hmm. most people don't necessarily do that. So, and it's just cool that the Park Service has has done this work and and provided uh, a report that's really for citizens, but also for park staff to have mm-hmm. them understand um, issues at the park, help them make better decisions about things going on at the park. I think that one of the ties there too that is important is why is that somewhere that they homesteaded in the first place? Perfect. Yes. And so well, you good. have springs yeah. which provide water. But they were also used as like cooling, like before refrigeration. Mm. And so it's like those resources are really quite tied to where people settled. Uh, Excellent point. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Check out the report. You you can get it on National Park Service website. It's really, really well done. Super cool. That's near Hodgenville? Yeah. It's like 45 minutes or an hour north of Mammoth Cave, I think. It's really pretty close. Mm -hmm. Okay. Abraham Lincoln National Historical Birthplace. Second on the list for unique (laughs) geologic formations or events or places in Kentucky you don't often hear about. I put uh, Elliott County Kimberlite. That's good. Okay. Let's let's get into this here. Okay. Kimberlite is an alkaic porphyritic peridotite containing abundant coarse olivine, serpentine, and phlogopite oh in a ground God. mass of other minerals. <laughs> oh, Can yeah. I, should I translate? Right. Please. Okay. I can't. A kimberlite is, a, is really a deep-seated igneous rock. Mm-hmm. A porphyritic peridotite just means it's got large crystals, large mineral crystals mm-hmm. amongst a mass of smaller mineral crystals. And it's a porphyritic, it has that sort of, that's a textural term, but it has that because these magma intrusions, it's a magma intrusion that cools and, and, and becomes an igneous rock that we call kimberlite. It's porphyritic, I think, because of the cooling rate. Mm. But anyway, you often hear kimberlites uh, described as pipes. There are narrow intrusions of magma that come from what's thought to be deep, uh, crust or in the mantle. Hmm. And there are a couple or three exposures of kimberlite in Elliott County, Kentucky. They are on the old geologic maps. The two outcrops, they were described on the maps and I think by some some master students back in the day as, as uh, kimberlite breccia. So yeah. it's kind of broken up. Uh, I don't, I've never seen these, but they... I don't know how well exposed they are. So it's not, I've been out there a long time ago and um, it was hard to find thing. You could find diggings maybe, and I wouldn't even go out there and try, but they, they are a curious feature and they're very prominent on the geologic map. They're not huge. Right. I don't know if you mentioned that. I mean, they're associated with diamonds. Yes. Cause they, they, they come in, they're intrusive, but they come in at very, very high pressure. And when they do that, they take carbon and that high pressure forms diamonds. And so a lot of these are associated with diamonds. There are some in the famous, really famous ones for which they're named are in South Africa, yeah. but mm. there's some in Canada. There's a lot in Canada and Russia 
And then one in Arkansas too, which right. is actually a big state park mm-hmm. there that you can you go, can look for diamonds. You can go look yeah. for diamonds, but this one, I think, I don't know if any diamonds have come out of this one, but that's why they're so interesting because they're associated with diamonds. Mm-hmm. But and every time somebody mentions Elliott County, like in the news or anything, I'm like, oh yes. Kimberly. <laughs> they have Kimberly. Do they think about their Kimberly? So it, it, is it, it a bizarre location for it? Like, it, yeah, I mean, you know, it's in the middle of sedimentary rocks, right? The Pennsylvanian, so, right? It's know. intrusive igneous rock that intrudes our Pennsylvanian sandstones and yeah. shales and sandstones yeah, or sedimentary so, rocks. I don't know what the age is. Um, I don't either. You know, it's it's younger than the right rocks that intrude the Pennsylvanian mm. rocks, but um, yeah, it's so a it's. It's a it is dark green black looking in igneous rock, right? Is that what? It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's really pretty. I mean, if you find a fresh, if you look, you know, on the internet or something for yeah. a fresh piece of Kimberlite, it's a really pretty rock. It's not common at all. Interesting. I, I also read that Kimberlite. Uh, intrusions have usually have very little contact metamorphism, mm-hmm. so they ascend from deep rapidly so it doesn't fast, give you yeah. time to ha- to bake the surrounding rock mm-hmm. and so uh, that's kind of cool yeah you met, yeah it's i mean it's our it's our one volcanic yeah. <laughs> rock yeah. thing yeah in that's all we have yeah. um, so exposed to the surface yeah exposed to the surface mm-hmm. everything else exposed to the surface pretty much sedimentary there is a uh, a Kentucky derby horse i forget which year yeah i can't uh, a few, remember a few years ago uh, named Kimberlite pipe <laughs> yeah Bet on it. Me too. Lost. Yeah. <laughs> Same. I always bet. You got to bet the geologic You got to. <laughs> you got to. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a great strategy, but. <laughs> Fun anyways. Uh, <laughs> next on the list is the Floresbar District in Western Kentucky. Crittenden, Livingston, and Caldwell counties in Western Kentucky, along the kind of along the Ohio River, have a dense array of faults and uh, sort of unusual bedrock structures where a lot of fluorospar has been mined. Fluorospar, I think, is just a commercial name for fluorite. Until the 1970s, more than three-fourths of the fluorospar produced in the United States comes from the Illinois and Kentucky fluorospar district. Uh, fluorite is used for all kinds of things iron production Metals, is the big iron one. production mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a flux of... i guess it keeps the temperature oh, right regulated yes uh so what happens i think is is these fluorite deposits are primarily veins in rock and uh just like you know vein, veins in your arm right and what happens is uh fluorine rich fluids come from deep seated igneous rocks well below the surface they intersect with some other fluids that are in the area in that in that basin. Those other fluids have sphalerite, galena, and barite. But these fluids get mixed, and then they take advantage of all the faults that are out there and precipitate a lot of fluorite as, as veins in these rocks. Just to know this part of the country was a leading producer of of fluorospar in the country was, was pretty neat. And, uh, you know, if you look at that area on a geologic map, it's kind of wild looking. There's a dense area Tons of, of faults. faults. Yeah, yeah. Dense area of faults. Yeah. Is um, this the critical minerals area yes. as well? Yes. Yeah. And so I think it was a historically sort of recognized for the fluorite, but now is being revisited 
because of what has been termed critical minerals by like I guess in 2020 like the US government like came up with a list of yeah. what these critical minerals are and they're concentrated there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's not it's minerals that go into things like batteries and you know Electric newer cars. technology and, yep. and mm-hmm. things like that. So phones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's possibility there's there's a source there. Yeah. I don't know if fluorite is one of them, but I don't either. And the yeah. um the Clement Mineral Museum is in Marion, Kentucky, and contains some of the finest fluorite specimens in the world. Doug, you've you've been there. I've been there. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's very neat. I'd like to go back mm-hmm. uh, field trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have some specimens in our um, atrium yeah. here mm-hmm. at KGS from that museum. Oh, cool. uh, fluorite's a really neat mineral. So yeah, it can be lots of different colors. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, associated with calcite a lot. So yeah. Mm. Sometimes you'll see it with calcite and other cool things. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, uh, last one I have on my list of unique formations or events or places in Kentucky you don't often hear about is Boone Cliffs. Um, Boone Cliffs is in Boone County. It's a uh, seventy-four acres of old-growth forest, and it's a state nature preserve. Uh, like I said, in Boone County near Burlington, there's lots of trails there. What's unique about Boone Cliffs is 20 to 40 foot cliff formations and out an outcrop of conglomerate, a conglomerate, say, sedimentary rock, uh, composed of gravels uh, deposited as glacial outwash about 200 to 500,000 years ago. I believe it's pre-Illinoisian. Go back and listen to our glacial, our glacial episode. episode. I right. think that was what I remember being so cool about it was that you had like three different deposits that you could sort of pick apart. The older ones are more solidified, like turned into rock. But by the time you get up to the uppermost, the younger ones, it's much more like crumbly and stuff. It's not quite solidified. Cemented, yeah. Yeah, cemented. That's probably... Yeah, I just remember it being very cool knowing that this is lithified glacial outwash that has uh, been weathered and eroded. Now it's these big cliffs in the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Glacial glacial deposits. A lot, right? Yeah, like forty yes. foot thick yeah, deposit. Yeah, oh, okay. and you start to see them. I remember um, driving along there as well, and you'd see little mounds, and that was also mm. like in that mm. area, kind of or, oh. around the cliffs, and those were also like glacial deposits. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So visit Boone Cliffs. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Betty, my in laws, uh, for a great question. We had did have too. one more. Oh, you got, you got to add one? We yeah. Had okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Go for it. It was your idea, I think. Uh, I was just thinking the arches that are in weird. <coughs> And not weird places, but places that you don't normally think of arches. and Which would be the gorge. Yeah, I think, you know, you yeah. usually think gorge, eastern Kentucky, but there's a lot of arches in Mammoth Cave, for right. instance. And I think Mammoth Cave is just a neat place to go visit on the surface anyway. But um, Right. I mean, you know. most of the park actually... The land is on the north side of the river there, but the cave is on the south side. So most people end up visiting the cave. There's over 70 miles of hiking trails on the backcountry on the north side. Yeah. Um, and that's where a lot of this like gorgeous terrain is. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering, there's a big arch in far western Kentucky called Mantle Rock, which we have a story map um, website wow. about. 
And um, there's a huge arch uh, right below the dam to um, Cumberland Lake um, called Rock House Shelter. Oh, yeah. Which is a big limestone arch. So, yeah, I was just going to say arches that Mm -hmm. aren't in the gorge area. Good one. Uh, Yes. Yeah. You don't hear about them. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. Good one. Good one, you all. There's a lot of them. We could do a whole other episode (laughs) on other neat places. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We will. Okay. Question (laughs) three. That's from my dad. Uh, (laughs) Really really tapping the uh, parents. The variety of our fan base is unbelievable. (laughs) My parents didn't. (laughs) Mine didn't either. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Okay. He asked, what type of new technologies are geologists taking advantage of to predict phenomena, advanced science, et cetera? It's a good one. It's a hard one. Yeah. I listed four things here. I I would say outright, we're all trying to advance science in our own ways with each of our areas of expertise. That's what, why we're here. It's why we do research. And that can happen at different rates, right? Um, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes you discover something and things change quickly. But I listed some things here. One, machine learning. That's, I mean, we're going to just broadly cover this. Machine learning, I'm sure people, our audience has heard about it, but you know, it's a field of inquiry devoted to building methods that have computers, quote, learn, um, that is really develop methods that leverage big data sets primarily to improve performance uh, on some set of tasks or something we don't really know about. Uh, Machine learning is sort of seen as part of AI, artificial intelligence. And you could really say it's a fancy, more robust way of using uh, of a statistical analysis for solving Mm -hmm. big problems uh, with big data. Machine learnings have uh, algorithms that are used in a variety of applications, like medical diagnosis, email filtering, speech and image recognition, traffic assessment, self-driving cars. The list goes on and on. It's really you know leveraging big data so we don't have to let the computers learn what the best answer is, basically. <laughs> and in geology we're doing more and more of this, right? Taking big data sets, big, big tables of numbers, you know, huge data sets and, and running machine algorithms to predict and shed light on, on certain phenomena. So mm-hmm. a couple examples come to mind. Uh, Jun Feng Zhu in our water section is doing some machine learning to identify sinkholes and right. ma- map sinkholes. Yeah. He's mapped thousands of sinkholes at a, extremely rapid rate because he can use these machine learning algorithms to identify them automatically. Yeah. He's field checked. I mean, not all of them, but you know, a certain percentage and Mm -hmm. his results are very, very good. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't as quick as he's doing. Some of the, I know some of like the inputs there, you know, is to identify little berms around these circular features because mm-hmm. if there are berms that hints at it being more man-made, like pond or something artificial. And so like all of that is somehow like input into the the algorithm. It's right. pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it gets better and better, I think, right. as you go on. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is part of it. Um, yeah, because you're getting more data. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm doing something similar with landslide susceptibility. So landslide susceptibility is e evaluating places on slopes where landslides are likely to occur generally. And what we're doing is taking all kinds of hill slope characteristics and letting a few machine learning techniques tell us which of those hill slope characteristics are most relevant um, to landslide occurrence, right? So we, we get these huge data tables of, of things like slope values and curvature values and aspect values and, you know, geomorphic values, numbers, and let the machine learning algorithm run and tell us what matters with landslide occurrence, and then we can make maps based on those answers. Mm -hmm. So that's been fruitful for us um, for landslide hazards assessment. Excellent. Okay. A more, I think, concise example here of new technologies geologists are taking advantage of is earthquake early warning. We didn't talk about this with Seth, who was our, our guest last time mm -hmm. with the earthquake episode, but um, earthquake early warning. It's detecting large earthquakes quickly so that alerts can reach people before the shaking arrives. And to be clear, this is not earthquake prediction. It's alerting people that shaking is imminent. There's mm -hmm. been a large enough earthquake. Where earthquakes the happened already. The earthquakes mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. The sensors detect that it's been large enough to potentially have uh, felt shaking. So let's alert mm -hmm. people to, to take a proper precaution and do things you need to do to be safe in, in an earthquake. So you have a sensor that's somewhere that detects a P wave, which is the first arriving wave when energy is released from an earthquake. Data is transmitted uh, to a, a, a system processing center. The U.S. Geological Survey is spearheading a lot of this, at least in the United States with a lot of collaborators, but their system's called ShakeAlert. So data is transmitted to a ShakeAlert center where they <laughs> estimate ground shaking and then an alert's made available to people and their devices, their phones. Mm -hmm. I, I think I would just say, along with that, just the use of sensors everywhere, right. um, I think has really been game-changing for earth science, for any sort of early warning earthquake, volcano, mm -hmm. even flooding. I mean, you know, the sensor that we have at streams and yep. mm -hmm. um, things like that. So, Which ties kind of in some ways back into these big data data sets as well. Right, so yeah. like, again, like they, the advances kind of go hand in hand. Being able to analyze. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, water levels, mm -hmm. um, remote sensing. Yeah, oh yeah, the, the lidar data. and yeah. landscape changes and mm -hmm. flying lidar over and over and over to monitor even like small changes or like your landslides. You were saying absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so next on the list for this question, I had drones. I'm a drone pilot, so I've flown the KGS drone a few times, and a lot, lots of. People fly drones. Uh, drones are used for all kinds of applications, but in earth science, they're really becoming much more used. I mean, just to gain access to places you couldn't go by foot and acquire aerial photography, acquire LIDAR, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. um, you can't get on the ground. I do yeah. like even we've started doing the radon sensing with yes. the drone, mm -hmm. which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And methane mm -hmm. sensing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, trying we just, to find. Abandoned oil and gas wells and... Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... 
We just got a new drone, by the way. It's sitting in my office in, oh, in, really? in, the, in the box. Oh, wow. It's a picture. It yeah, it's, it's right? for, for oh. photogrammetry. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So now we have the, the big dog that, that uh, yeah. carries the LiDAR sensor, and now wow. we have this, this one. Sweet. I've seen some yeah. pretty cool applications of that to string beam erosion and things oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. Cool. And so the last one I had on the list here for this question is social media. And it's not, That's I don't know. That's an interesting you, one. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, it came to mind. <laughs> I, I don't know if you could call it a new technology, but it's it's something we can't avoid. It, it, it has changed the way we, we communicate. Various forms of social media are being used by individuals to share information and connect without without any borders, right? So it's just this ever-present thing and uh it's scientists have to learn to adapt and use it i think social media can link scientists to to investigators to the public to change the way we conduct scientific discourse Mm -hmm. and really show the importance of our work um increase visibility of our work and and things like that the question one of the questions is how do we optimize this big effort in the wild west of social media and not kill ourselves while doing that. Right. I say that sort of metaphorically. Right. But yeah, it's hard to, I mean, figure out how to navigate it, Mm -hmm. how to adapt to the changes in social media that are happening as we speak. I mean, it is fantastic for getting information out for, I mean, we talked about earthquake early warning, you know, things like Twitter you hear about, you know, events on yeah. Twitter before you hear about it. Right. Kind of anywhere else. It's not Absolutely. exactly mm-hmm. early warning, but right. it's a fantastic way to do, ha- you know, hazard um, announcements, I guess. Mm-hmm. If you, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, or, got people in the area where things are happening. So I kind of just came to my mind as well. Like your crowdsourcing for data and mm-hmm. your citizen science is all sort of tied in there too. Yep. So, yeah. yep. Like it or not, it, it can be utilized for data collection, search, you know, surveys, hazard assessments, emergency mm-hmm. rescue recovery efforts, mm-hmm. disseminating research, advancing our understanding of know, lots of things. Yeah. I mean, I know I've connected with scientists on there that I never, I don't, I don't know how else I would have. Right. Unless I saw them at a meeting somehow, but yep. right. you know, it's, it is, it's great. Um, and- so communicating it, it, to the public too. Yeah, that so that that's a great point. Communicating to the public and and for a lot of scientists that can be an uneasy place to do to communicate your science. Mm-hmm. Social media, you, people feel like they really have to be careful yeah. about what they say and that's true, but you know, this is I don't think this is going anywhere and I think we have to learn to take advantage of it the best the best way we can. Mhm. You didn't have podcasts down here. I know. I know. Gosh, that was a major, major fail. Major fail. Um, that, that, this sort of leads me to a tangent I, I jotted down here. Um, I wanted to, in that question from my dad actually got me thinking about this, but I wanted to make a reference to the Making Sense podcast. Mm which is Sam Harris's podcast. He's a neuroscientist and author and philosopher. The, the podcast is great. I've actually stolen a lot of his style to try to apply to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I don't know if that shows, but it's it's something, I don't know, I just really like, like how he does it. There's a lot of good conversation. Anyway, 
his guest a month or so ago was Neil deGrasse Tyson, the, the astrophysicist from Princeton and author and cream of the crop science communicator, right? Mm-hmm. They had a discussion about science in general, kind of a 30,000 foot view of this science endeavor for, for human beings and talked a lot about confusion with scientific controversies and respecting scientific consensus or overturning it, uh, which is like mistrust in science. Uh, They talked about climate change. They talked about social media and science, identity politics and science, and and lots of intersecting concepts and ideas with, with doing science. So I recommend listening to that. But one thing that uh, stuck out there in their conversation was they discussed the importance of probability and statistics in early education. They argued, you know, if we taught probability to kids at a young age, we'd be more equipped to evaluate complex problems a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It's not to say, like, get rid of algebra and calculus, but that just, like, totally connected with me because I, have a, I had a very poor background in that. Mm. And I now work in a field where that is super important. And so I had to really do a lot of catch up mm-hmm. with understanding statistics, probability, and how to to think about the world that way. And I, you know, like you all can, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you know, like the fact that we've been working scientists for a long time, you know that 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 shapes our thinking. What we do, you know, shapes how we think about the world, and, and science is a big part of that. So the point of this little tangent is that we have to address complex problems and questions by balancing the use of rapidly changing, changing technology, some of which we just mentioned, with cultural shifts in how people think and consume information. Yeah, I mean, um, I was gonna, I was thinking about the social media thing and this sort of relates back to it, but the pitfall of social media is that it's really easy to spread mm. bad information. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, having those tools to evaluate information mm-hmm. is going to be, it is very important now. It's going to be even more important as we go on. So if, yeah, if that means um, teaching more statistics, probability, how we analyze data, yeah. and things like that, then if that helps, then yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause I'm probably the same, definitely the same boat. I mean, I didn't have that stuff until, at least college, I know, grad right? school, you know, so, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and really not even then it was really working. And I was really lucky that my father pushed me to take a college statistics class when I was in high school. Very oh, smart. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, if yeah. it weren't for that, and it wasn't something that was like offered mm-hmm. through my high school, like I had, yeah, had well, to go it was somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but like, I have always been thankful that, he saw the value in that mm-hmm. um, because then each subsequent statistics class that was required for school, like I'd already kind of seen it and yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's good. Fourth question. Why is there, this is from Christian DeSeal. DeSeal? DeSeal. Okay. Hi, Christian. Oh, all right. <laughs> Thank you for giving us a question. Uh, he posted on Facebook, I think. Why is there oil and gas in South Central Kentucky? I think it's in the Brownsport slash Chattanooga Shale uh, where they drill it near me. 
what is going on around the Silurian Devonian that led to it? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, we haven't talked about oil and gas origins. And right, mm-hmm. right. It, it is, it's not, we're not a huge oil and gas producing state, but we do have a fair amount of activity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here. And one of the older producers. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Even if we're not That's a good point. Yeah. Doing yeah. it so much now. Yeah. 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 So I jotted some notes down here. The, the short answer is the origin of our sedimentary rocks. And in order to have sedimentary rocks, you need ancient sediments and particularly organics in those sediments in marine environments. The subsequent lithification of those sediments, which just means after those sediments were, were laid down uh, somewhere, uh, the process that turns them into uh, rock. Uh, subsequent lithification, earth pressure, erosion, formation of geologic structures, all of which are processes that shape the rocks that we see today and sort of tell the story of why they contain oil and gas. So petroleum and natural gas are naturally occurring substances composed of hydrocarbon molecules. There's lots of types of hydrocarbons. Crude oil is just one example of a, a long list, I think, of, of complex mixture of hydrocarbons. Mm. But essentially, f- fluids generated from the de- decay of prehistoric plants and other critters under the influence of excessive pressures and temperatures in the subsurface create what we know as uh, oil and gas. Mm-hmm. It needs to be oxygen starved i believe in order to form and so like that's why they're drilling and the delta uh or sediments the i'm sorry the gulf not the delta the gulf uh well same yeah yeah sorry uh because at that mouth where all of your like sediments and things come out it can quickly bury your Mm. organic material and so it stops that decay and then as it is lithified it squeezes that out of the pore space i think into a porous rock is that right yes i mean in that i think that's also related to the migration of oil and gas you know in these in these reservoirs yeah the subsurface yeah that's good yeah there's formation and then yeah then migration i guess right um but yeah, I think you're yeah you're right. The oxygen starved environment that's in big that really fast. You have to have that really fast sedimentation burial. and yeah. burial um, yeah coming together. So yeah. so over geologic time, free floating what do you call it like zooplankton, algae, other marine critters die. They settle to the ocean floor, and then these geological processes start to happen. They're they're buried transported, the sediments become lithified, they become sedimentary rocks, and the that organic material is under lots of weight of overlying sediment and rock, and uh, th- that's what, you know, uh, generates the, the hydrocarbon. But yeah, so the Silurian and the Devonian in Kentucky was this optimal kind of mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. Where, where that happened, oxygen-starved, organic-rich sediments buried deep mm-hmm. and very thick right. sediments. So that depositional environment, that oceanic time 
you know, when these were marine sediments and things as well. Like we were our, on the coast, right? So it's, it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. It was like an in, big inland sea. Right. Yes, with a, yes. I think a pulsating in, delta. Exactly. Coming from the east. Yeah. So that the, would be rising Appalachians. I think Kentucky's gas reservoirs are primarily in the Devonian shales, which would include the Chattanooga shale. Mm hmm. So the Chattanooga Shale is also called the New Albany Shale and other places. That's exposed at the surface in some places in Kentucky. But I think the gas extracted from it is in the Chattanooga Shale well below the surface, mm -hmm. like in eastern Kentucky. That's fascinating. It really is. Yeah. If you don't have the right, you know, the 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 uh, hydrocarbons, they burn off, they become tar, they do mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So um, you have to have that perfect sort of environment yeah. yes yeah. um of deposition and then also preservation and then right. migration right good question yeah that's great christian yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah we'll have a we'll have another episode yeah send us more questions yeah, yeah. for sure <laughs> okay last question um hello oh this is from brad luckett also submitted on facebook hello yeah. i love the podcast have been a kgs intern from 2003 to 2005 what about an episode on impact structures in Kentucky? Yes. Short answer, yes. <laughs> we can do that. We will We will do that. It's been on our list for a while. Kentucky does have at least one known meteorite impact structure. The town of Middlesboro, which is in Bell County, southeastern Kentucky, sits in a meteorite impact crater. There's... I don't know. Well, we can't go really go through the evidence for that right now, but th there is geologic evidence, mineralogic evidence for an impact, and there's some geomorphic evidence, right? Some mm -hmm. so just those general landscape shape yeah. in, mm -hmm. in the town of Middlesboro. It sort of sits in this wide in basin mm -hmm. in a, in a, a mountainous area. So we'll talk about Middlesboro. There's two other places in Kentucky where people have theorized that there are also impact structures. One is called Jephthah Knob. It's in Shelby County. And the other is a small feature in Versailles in Woodford County. Mm. I don't know if the evidence is as strong in those places as it is Middlesboro, but we can get an expert on to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, Definitely. yeah, we should have an expert on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just as interesting. If they aren't impact structures, I mean, I'm pretty sure Middlesboro is, but mm -hmm. yes, the, the, the other evidence for. Um, possibly Jephthah and Versailles. It's still an interesting story. It's just yes. maybe not a meteorite impact, but right. we'll have but to get an expert on here. <laughs> don't entirely know what it is, I think. Like, I think, I think it's know. still out yeah. for debate. Yeah. I, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we have somebody in mind to talk about it as well. Yeah. Hopefully they can break that down. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. If you drive 64 east or west, like from, from Lex to Louisville, say, and you approach... Uh, Shelbyville, mm -hmm. there is an uh, anomalous hill uh, yeah, that's just sort of sticking out mm -hmm. there amongst the flat and rolling hills of Shelby County. Mm -hmm. It's really prominent, I think, if you're coming. It seems more from, from the west, from Louisville, yeah, it's from, more, and from Louisville, yeah, looking that direction is, yeah. It's but, like, why yeah, is this, it's why got, is this hill here? Yeah, they put <laughs> yeah. those towers on it and everything because right. yeah. it's the most prominent thing. Brad, good question. Thank you for jogging our. A memory, and we'll get this one on the on the list. Yeah, for sure. 
This yeah. was a fun episode. Yeah. yeah. I actually like this. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Ask us anything. Let's do it again. We, we know it all. I mean, you might yeah. do it. It was just where, you know, we don't have any notes. We're just making this up as we go along. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, if you have any more questions, you can email us. KGSmail at uky.edu or... Um, just ask us on Facebook or right. yeah, that worked just fine. Call us on the phone, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We'll talk. <laughs> you all. Uh, all right. Thank you. Cool. Have a great holiday and happy new year. All yeah. that. Yeah. yeah have too. a good break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is the first of the new year. This yeah. episode. Yeah. It, well, when is it? Yeah, we'll release this right after, um, Right during holiday oh, yeah. period. Okay. This will be people's little holiday surprise. That's right. It's oh, man. Hard. Yeah. Holiday gift. gift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, nice. y'all. Thank yeah, you. See ya. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.